We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. We are in the last week of Jesus' life, uh, Mark chapters 11 through 16. And uh, last week we talked about the story of Jesus entering into town riding a donkey. Uh, This is typically what we would call Palm Sunday. It's commonly believed that the following day, Monday, is when He cleansed the temple, that Tuesday He taught in the temple area. It's commonly believed that on Thursday, when we have the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus' arrest, Friday, we often call Good Friday, so Friday when He was tried, uh, found guilty, crucified, and buried. Saturday is a quiet day, as a Sabbath day, He's in the tomb, and of course, Sunday is the day when He rose from the grave, and that's why we're gathered here, in His name, because Jesus is risen from the grave and alive today. But today we are going to be looking at the events that most likely took place of Monday that week. We're going to look at the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, as it's often called. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 12 through 21. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired Word of our God. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple." And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, recognizing, confessing Jesus is the King. He has authority to curse the tree and it withers immediately. He has the authority to enter the temple and turn over the tables. And I pray this morning we would recognize his authority and we would come under the reign of King Jesus and let his words minister to us. I pray if there's any table in our lives that needs to be turned over, that you'll do your work, that we will allow you in to turn over any table that needs to be turned over so we respond appropriately for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if I had to summarize the main point of our passage, I think I would do it in this way. Uh, Bearing fruit for all the nations for Christ. In other words, I think we are being called to bear fruit for the sake of all the nations, and ultimately for Christ. And I just want to look at these three different phrases separately. So let's begin with the first phrase, bearing fruit. Last week we saw where Jesus entered Jerusalem late at night, or in the evening. He entered the temple really briefly, and then He leaves, and He leaves Jerusalem. And now it's the next morning, and He comes back. It's probably about a 30-minute walk from where He was. And on His way, verse 12 tells us He got hungry. And we're reminded he's one of us in every way, yet without sin. He gets hungry just like you do. He says, I need breakfast. And he sees this tree. It's a fig tree. 
It tells us that there are leaves growing on it, so that suggests the presence of leaves on a fig tree suggests there should be some food, there should be some fruit. Uh, But Mark does tell us, verse 13, it was not the season for figs. Some commentators believe that it's not the main primary season for growing figs, uh, but it is in the spring, and there was possibly supposed to be some small figs that a person could eat if they were hungry and just needed a quick bite for breakfast. But when Jesus gets to the tree, though it appears like it should have fruit, it doesn't. It has no fruit. And in verse 14, he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So he curses the tree. And uh, I want us to consider what, why and, and what does this mean? I mean, let's be honest. This is kind of unique. It, it seems at first glance to be a little bit out of character. He normally seems to be patient. And it just seems at first glance like he's hungry. He went to get some food. There wasn't food on the tree. He curses the tree. No more food for you. No more fruit for you. This is, it seems at first glance to be a little impulsive, if, 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 I think, if we're honest. And it's also unique. It's a unique miracle. It's a miracle. You can't curse a tree and it withers and dies immediately. That's, a, that's an event that normally takes a, a decent process. So it's a miracle, but it's the only miracle of all his miracles that leads to death. Most of his miracles are healing miracles, miracles that lead to life. You know, the, the only other miracle that you could possibly put in the category is when Jesus casts the demons out uh, from the man and sends them to the pigs, and then the herd of pigs drown, which, by the way, as a Razorback fan, is not my favorite story <laughs> in the Gospels, but it's there, and I believe it. Uh, but even in that miracle, right, casting out demons from a man, he's healing the man, he's choosing them, the health of the man over the animals, and rightly so, right? And, and so this one's unique. He's, he curses a tree, and it dies. How, how should we think about this? First of all, I want to point out, I think this is sort of an acted-out parable. We should think of it almost like a parable that he's acting out. And this is not uncommon. The prophets did this in the Old Testament fairly regularly, sort of an acted-out message. And I think this is an acted-out message. He's, he's, he's demonstrating his opposition to fruitlessness. And that's going to be important as we continue in the text. Um, but in case... There's somebody who takes issue with Jesus cursing a tree and killing a tree. You know, I'll just remind you, there are billions of trees in the world. There have been throughout human history. And Jesus obviously thinks making this point is worth killing a tree. And so I would encourage you to listen to the point that he's making and be more concerned with what's the point than with this one particular tree that Jesus kills so that it dies. Secondly, I think it's important for us to recognize this image of the fig tree is a common image in the Old Testament to describe the people of God. And, and the idea of fruitlessness and trees not bearing fruit is a common metaphor in the Old Testament to describe God's people. And in particular, the religious leaders among God's people. So this is imagery you will find throughout the prophets. Let me just mention two references. You can look them up some other time. Jeremiah 8.13 and Micah 7.1 are both examples of this. And Jesus is using the same language. He knows the Old Testament. He's using the same imagery, the same language, the same metaphor. It's an acted out parable in order to make a point. And he's, he's basically saying, here's a tree that has an appearance of life. It has an appearance of growth. It's got green leaves on it. And yet it's dead. It, it's not bearing fruit. It is fruitless. And so he curses it. And, and Jesus is pretty emphatic about People bearing fruit. 
right? He's pretty emphatic that we not be like the fig tree. Let me just give one other example. John 15, verses 5 and 6, and then verse 8. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me and live and bear fruit. And he says, and if you don't, you will be cast out. And you'll be like a branch that withers, like a branch that withers and dies and is burned. You will be like the fig tree in this acted out parable. So Jesus is saying, guys, don't be like that. Abide in me, stay in me, bear fruit, and listen to the language he uses. Prove to be my disciples. Prove it by bearing fruit. And he says, if you don't, you'll be cast out and you'll die. It's very strong language. In fact, it's so strong that a lot of evangelicals don't know what to do with it. And you'll find some evangelicals who will say, you know, this isn't really a teaching for all Christians. It's just for those who want to be really serious about the faith. It's just for those who want to be the spirit-filled Christians, the ones who really follow Jesus as Lord, the ones who are really storing up their treasures in heaven and they're going to have a bunch of rewards. But for those of us who are just kind of normal, ordinary, mundane, your normal run-of-the-mill Christians, this isn't, I mean, he's, you know, this isn't for us. This is strong language. It's not necessarily for us. And, and if you kind of tend to fall in that camp, I just urge you, like, go back and read it again. John 15, 5 and 6 and 8. Jesus is clear. Abide in me, bear fruit. If you don't, you're cast out, you wither, you die, you're burned. He says, bear fruit and prove to be my disciples. Prove it. This is the language of Jesus. Another mistake that evangelicals will make with this is they'll say, well, if I look at my life and I'm honest, I don't see a lot of fruit. And so I feel really kind of guilty. And Jesus says, only those who bear fruit. So what do I do with that? And some evangelicals will just say, you know, I think I'm done. Like, I give up. I feel really guilty. There's no fruit. I must be the one that Jesus is talking about who's cast out and burned. So I guess I'm out. And I just want to encourage you this morning, don't, don't read it like that. It's not intended to make you say, I'm out. It's intended to get your attention and say, hey, start bearing fruit. Like, listen to the warning. It's a warning. But the warning is not meant to cause you to say, I'm out. The warning is meant to say, persevere. Here's how. Keep going. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep producing faith. And persevere to the end. It's a warning passage. Um, I read a report this past week that said in the year 2020, the most dangerous intersection in terms of the most number of wrecks uh, away from the interstate was the intersection at Powers and Stetson Hills, which happens to be this one right out here. And as a person who drove that intersection every day, just about, you know, I can attest to, there there was a dangerous element to it. There There were 47 wrecks. That's like one a week. And I think the problem was, Used to be when you turn north on Powers, you know, there was just a green light and you could go, but it was kind of a blind, it was blind to see who was coming. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of near misses along the way. I think they've solved the problem because they've now gone in and put two lanes and they've also put uh, green arrows. And so you have to wait till the arrow's green and then you can go when there's nobody coming from the blind spot. So I think they've solved the problem. But the reason why I mention this 
The warning passages in the Bible are meant to function in a similar way that warning signs function out there as we drive. You know, we don't see yield signs and slow down signs and, and, and 25 mile per hour signs and say, you know, oh, I just don't think I'm going to drive. You know, these warning signs are just too much for me. I think I'm just done driving, right? We, 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 we're grateful for them, you know? The, the yellow light that lets you know it's about to turn red. Some of you interpret as hurry up and go fast. Some of you interpret as it's time to slow down, right? And I'll let you decide which one's the correct interpretation. Uh, I won't speak to that this morning. Um, but I do want to say the warnings are there a, not to cause you to give up and say, I'm done. There's just too many warnings, you know, too many signs. I just can't drive. I'm not going to drive. I'm done. They're also not meant for you to ignore. Like, well, they're not really for me, you know? These warnings are for other people. I don't really need the warnings. I know how fast I need to drive. I know what I need to do here. No, the warnings are for you. Don't ignore them. And, and also don't let them be a means of causing you to say, I'm done. You know, like, I hate them. I feel guilty. I've broken too many. I'm out. And in the same way, how should you respond to the warning passages in the Bible? Similar. Don't let them cause you to quit. If you feel guilt about past, you know, not living up to it, that, that, that guilt is actually good. Like God can use that. He's convicting you. Respond to the conviction. Respond to the guilt. And respond to the warnings in Scripture. What is the warning? The warning is you need to abide in me and bear fruit. Right? So it's a real warning. You can't just say, oh, it's not really for me. You know, I'm a Christian. I know I'm saved. That's not for me. I don't really need that. No, it's a warning for you. Just as much as the warnings out there are warnings for you, it's a warning for you. You need to abide. You need to bear fruit. You need to keep going. You need to keep trusting. Don't let it discourage you and cause you to fall away. But don't think it's not for you. It's for you. We're called here to bear fruit. But secondly, I want you to see that we're called to bear fruit for all the nations. Now, you may say, that's kind of weird. How do I, I mean, what do you mean by that? I get it straight from the text, so I'll, I'll explain the text, and then I think you'll say, okay, we know now why you're saying bear fruit for all the nations. So our story of the cursing of the fig tree is followed by a, the story of Jesus going into the temple and what's called cleansing the temple. And what's interesting is Mark is going to come back and finish the story of the cursing of the fig tree after the story of the temple. So this is a very technical term here. This is a biblical, theological, you know, interpretational uh, term. This is a sandwich, all right? He starts out with the, with the fig tree, and then in the middle you got the cursing of the temple, and then he finishes it with the fig tree. So it's a sandwich. And Mark does this a lot, very common to Mark. You see this a lot. Start with one story, introduce a second story, and then come back and finish the first story. And when you see that, we should say, okay, Mark wants us to see these events as being related. How are these similar? How are they different? So how are they similar? He passes judgment on the tree, and then he passes judgment on the temple. Why? Because the temple has an apparent activity. There's leaves, there's green, there's, there, there appears to be a lot of ministry, there appears to be a lot of growth, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of people. There appears to be life, but the problem is, it's not real spiritual life. It, there's, there's fruitlessness. And Jesus is here to judge the temple just like He judges the tree because of the fruitlessness of the temple and in particular, the religious leaders who are leading in the temple. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, the great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all bear leaves. 
but they produce no fruit. There's a lot of people who have leaves, green leaves, appearance of life, appearance of spiritual life, but there's no fruit. Jesus is judging the tree and he's judging the temple for a lack of true, genuine fruit. Look at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So when he gets to the temple, what he finds is people buying and selling animals. Why? For sacrifices. Right? And of course, there's money that's made off of it. They make money, of course, then, and the money's going into the, the religious leaders' pockets. There's also a temple tax that had to be paid with a shekel. And for those who didn't have shekels, they had to exchange money. And of course, there was a profit that was made from that. And when Jesus shows up, he sees all this commotion. Animals, selling, money, noises. And by the way, don't just picture like, you know, a little, you know, a little section of the temple where they're selling a few sheep. Josephus said one year there were 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed for Passover. One year. So, so picture... Somewhere in the ballpark of 255,000 sheep coming through the building, along with all the pigeons. And think about the noise that comes with that. And think about the smells that come with that. Right? And think about, the, the, just the, it's more like a circus. Right? It's more like a fair than a temple, a place of quiet worship and prayer. And Jesus is not, I don't think he's critical here because they're, they have sheep that they're selling. I mean, that's a necessary part of it. I don't think he's critical that they're making a little money off of it, right? Uh, I don't think he's critical that they're making money off of the coin exchange. He's critical because of where it's happening. It's happening in the temple. It, it should have been happening somewhere else. And in previous, it, it used to happen somewhere else. And I read where, you know, it's, it's during the time of Jesus, it was around that time when they brought it onto the temple grounds, and that's a problem. They're converting the temple, which is to be designed for these purposes, and they're using it for those purposes. And it's not just the temple, it's, it's the specific area in the temple where they're doing this. It, 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 it happened in the court of the Gentiles. So you've got to think of the temple, it's almost like concentric circles. In the very center, the really small area is the Holy of Holies, where only one priest goes annually. Uh, and so it's very restricted, in the, and it's a really small part of the temple, kind of the main part of the temple. And then outside of that is a place where only Jewish men could go. And then outside of that is a place where only Jewish men or women could go. And then outside of that is a place where God-fearing Gentiles, pagans, uh, or pagans in the sense of non-Jewish, could go. And this is the area. The court of the Gentiles is the area where they've set up the circus, where you have all the sheep and the pigeons and the noise and the money-making. So the place where God-fearing Gentiles were supposed to be able to go and worship and pray has now gotten turned into a circus. And I think that, in particular, is what Jesus is so angry about. Look at verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? All he's doing here is quoting two Old Testament passages. The second one, you've made a den of robbers, comes right from Jeremiah 7, 11. And the first quote, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, is a direct quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. And I want you to notice that phrase, for all the nations. Very important phrase. 
for all the nations. My house is a house of prayer for all the nations. The nations is the word ethnos in the Greek, where we get our word ethnicity. For all the ethnicities. A good translation would be people groups. For all the people groups. For all the different peoples, all the nations, all the ethnicities. My house, God is saying, shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. But Jesus says, you have turned it into something else. And that's a problem. Uh, We see God has a heart for all the nations. He always has. God's heart for all the nations doesn't start with Jesus in the New Testament. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. You'll see the phrase, all the nations, something like a hundred times in the Old Testament. And I just want to drive this this point home a little bit by quoting from the section in Isaiah 56 that Jesus referenced. So he just referenced one phrase, but listen to the bigger context. And I just want you to hear the heart of God for all the nations and the purpose of his temple being a place of worship for all the peoples, or what he's going to call the foreigners. Listen to Isaiah 56. I'm going to begin reading verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, let not the foreigner, the outsider, let them not say, I am dry. Let them not say, I'm a dry, fruitless tree. Instead, let them come. Let them come to me and bear fruit. Let me keep reading. Verse 6 of Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God has a heart for foreigners. And I just want to say this morning, that's good news for you and me because we are foreigners. We are outsiders and and God has brought us in and we should be grateful for this. We see the heart of God for all peoples in the Old Testament and of course we see the heart of God for all peoples in the New Testament. This is the language Jesus uses in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of whom? All the nations. It's just a continuation of the heart and the pattern and the ethos of God. So this is the irony. The irony is they thought that the Messiah was going to come and purify the temple of all these Romans and all these Gentiles and all these pagans. That was the hope. That was the excitement. That was, wait till the Messiah comes and he cleanses the temple and purifies the temple of all the Gentiles, in particular the Romans. But what's the irony? Jesus comes... And he doesn't cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. He cleanses the temple for the Gentiles. He cleanses the temple of the people who are fruitless and not bearing fruit and don't have a heart for all the nations. And he does it for the sake of the Gentiles, for the sake of all the nations. And guess who doesn't respond real well to this? The religious leaders. Imagine that. Listen to how they respond. Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the religious leaders interpret this as an attack on them, and guess what? It was. 
And they're now looking for a way to destroy him. But they can't do it publicly because they're afraid of him because everybody's so astonished with him. He, has, he teaches with authority. He's got this crowd. They can't arrest him publicly or else that'll be bad publicity for them. And so they look for a way to try to arrest him privately at night and they'll find that. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Uh, Jesus is judging them just like he's judging the tree. Because God's people are supposed to be bearing fruit for the sake of others, for the sake of the nations. We're supposed to be a light like a city set on a hill for others. We're supposed to be set apart and holy in order to make God known as holy so that He's known as the holy God that He is to all the nations. And so this is a warning not just for the religious leaders in Jesus' day, this is a warning for us. Are we the church? being a light for the nations? Are we, the church, being wholly set apart, bearing fruit for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of others? I heard a story about a man who was stranded on an island for 20 years. And by himself, they finally found him. And when they found him, they rescued him. They, they noticed he had built these three structures on this island, and they asked him about them. You know, what is this structure right here? And he said, that's where I lived. That was my house. I slept there. I ate there. And they said, well, what's this structure over here? And he said, that's where I would worship. That's where I would go to church and worship God. And they said, wow, that's kind of interesting. And they said, well, we'll explain this, this other structure, this first one over here. And he said, well, that's where I used to go to church, but then we had a split and I decided to change churches. <laughs> it's kind of a modern day parable. Somehow he was unhappy with his church and he was the only member of the church. The point is this. Sometimes we can be so inwardly focused as a church on us. What do I want? What makes me happy? What's my preference? What do I like? Is it meeting what I want? We can be so focused on us that we fail to accomplish the mission, which is to be bearing fruit for the sake of others, for the nations, right? I've heard, I've heard of some ministries, small groups, that'll have an, an, what they call the empty chair. So when they meet, they're there to do ministry to one another, minister to one another, but there's an empty chair kind of reminding them, like somebody's not yet here. And we exist not just for us, we exist for him, we exist for her. So, so we have the empty chair there as an image to remind us who's going to be sitting there that we're going to minister to that we've not yet reached, but we're going to reach one day soon. At our church, we use the four words to describe this discipleship process, four words to describe our expectation of people who join here. And those four words are these. We want you to worship, connect, serve, and impact. And it would be very possible for us as a church to do the first three like really well. Worship, get connected, serve each other. It's very possible to do these three things well and fail to do the fourth one, which is make an impact. Right? It's very possible to have a lot of activity, a lot of ministries, a lot of people, a lot of commotion, a lot of good things going on. So from the outside looking in, a person might say, wow, this church is really on fire. I mean, look at all that's going on. But if there's no impacting, if we are not impacting the nations, if we're not impacting our neighbors, if we're not impacting those who don't know Christ, there's a sense in which we're really no different than the fig tree that Jesus came along for and didn't have any patience with. Right? There's a sense that we're really no different than the temple in Jesus' day with a lot of activity, a lot of commotion, a lot of apparent ministry, a lot of apparent activity. But Jesus rebuked it. 
because it was fruitless, because they weren't bearing fruit for the nations. And so here's my question for you and me this morning. Who are you impacting? Where's the empty chair in your life? Your, Your Sunday school class, your Bible study, your family, you as an individual. Who is the person you're impacting? Who is the person who's at church today because of you? Who is the person who has come to Christ because God used you in his or her life? to bring that person to Christ. Like, it, is there fruit? And if there's not, don't just say, I feel guilty, I'm out, I'm done. That's not the purpose of the warning. The warning is to say, let, it, let, it, let this be the grace of God that, 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 that ministers to you and says, I need to start bearing fruit. Not just for the sake of, I bear fruit because I got, I got fruit to show for myself. I'm bearing fruit for the sake of others. That's why God wants us to bear fruit. That's why He wants us to have our light shine. That's why He wants us to be holy, to be set apart for the nations, for others, for our neighbors, for those who are not yet a part of the covenant community of God. So, we're here to bear fruit for all the nations, but ultimately we're here to bear fruit for the nations for Christ. Here's the point. We're not just merely called to bear fruit. We're not just merely called to make an impact on others. We are called to do this for the name of Christ, for His sake. Look at verses 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So they come back the next morning and they find the fig tree has withered. Matthew tells us it happened at once. Jesus cursed it, it withered at once. Mark suggests that it's not till the next morning that the disciples notice it as they pass by. But we are reminded from this story that Jesus is Lord over the creation. He can speak to a tree and curse it, and it withers at once. Think about how miraculous that is. It normally takes a tree a while to die. There's a process involved. I mean, we're talking about its roots withering. It's got green leaves one second. The next second, the roots are withered. It's a miracle. Right? Most, most of the time, most trees, if they, they die, it, it, it happens over a course of time. That's how most things work. That's what's natural. That's the way God designed the world. Most things happen naturally. That's why we call them natural. It happens by nature. It happens naturally. It's a part of God's design. Periodically, God enters in and there's a miracle. He, he suspends the laws of nature. He advances a process that normally takes a long time and he, ha- he makes it happen immediately. I think of when Jesus turns the water to wine. That's another type of miracle like this where normally that would be a longer process. Jesus is able to do it in a split second. How? He's the Lord of creation. I think there's a lesson here for the issue of the age of the earth. God has the ability to create things that might appear to have a, a lot of maturity in time, but in reality they were created instantaneously. Let me give an example. When God created Adam and Eve, He didn't create them as infants. He created them as, like I don't know, 20-year-old, 30-year-old. So think about that. Adam is literally 10 minutes old, and he has the maturity of a 30-year-old, like a mature body, muscles and everything. He didn't grow muscles over 30 years. He's a day old, and he looks like a 30-year-old. How? How how is that possible? Because he's the Lord of creation. He can do that. So, you know, the age of the earth, it, it makes sense that it might appear to some to be 
extremely old, like in terms of millions of years. And yet at the same time, God can create it in a split second, six days, one second. He can create the entire universe in a second, and it might have the appearance to some to be really old, but how can he do that? He's the Lord of the universe. And if you're willing to say you believe Jesus can curse a tree and it withers the next day to its roots, then you should have no problem being able to say God can do anything like this. Turn water to wine, create Adam as if he has age when he doesn't, and create an earth as if it has age when it doesn't. He's the Lord of creation. We also see that he's the Lord of the temple. He has authority over the temple. He has authority to come in and cleanse it and turn over tables. He has the authority to predict its fall, and he does, and it will. Look at Mark 13, verses 1 and 2. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They're talking about the temple. Look, Jesus, look how wonderful this temple is. It's marvelous. Look at this creation. Wow. And Jesus says, one day soon, there's not going to be one of these stones on top of each other. God's going to judge it, and it's going to be brought down. And by the way, that happens. Like 40 years later in 70 AD. So so notice the pattern. Jesus rebukes a tree. Then Jesus rebukes the temple. Then the tree dies, and then the temple dies. The temple is destroyed. right? And and, and this isn't the only temple that Jesus is going to predict that's going to be destroyed. John 2.19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2.21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus refers to himself as a temple. And Jesus refers to himself as a greater temple than any temple that preceded him. Matthew 12.6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. I think it's helpful at this point to pause and consider what is a temple, (laughs) right? What is a temple? In the very beginning... There was no temple. When God created, there was a garden. The garden was the temple. The garden was the sanctuary. The garden is the place where God dwelled with his people, and he was there, and they were with him. And it was good, and there was no temple. The the garden was the temple, in a sense. But when Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. They were kicked out of God's presence. And God placed a flaming sword, Genesis 3.24, to separate and to to not allow sinners back into his presence. He couldn't allow it. So if you're going to come back into the presence, you come by the sword, you come by the flaming sword. In other words, it requires death. Right? And so this this is the problem. Now, by God's grace, he provided a provisional, a provisional temple, a provisional temple that that required animal sacrifices. There had to be blood. There had to be death in order for the people to be back and restored into the presence of God. For the people to enter into the unique presence of God required death. It required blood. And that's what the bulls and the goats were for. And the pigeons. But as the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the temple was provisional. The temple was temporary. And the temple was pointing forward to something bigger and better and greater. The temple was pointing forward to a truer temple. And the truer temple is Jesus. Jesus is a greater temple. He's able to be the temple because He is the very presence of God. When He's with His people, when He's among us, when He walks among us, the Bible says He tabernacles among us. He's the presence of God. He's the glory of God. He is with us and we are with Him. 
He's a greater temple than any temple preceding him. He's also not only the temple, he's a priest. And he's a greater priest than any priest that precedes him. Why? Because he's not only fully man, he's fully God. And as fully God and fully man, he's able to be our, the one who can represent God perfectly to us because he's God. And he can represent us perfectly to God because he's truly one of us. He's the perfect priest. No priest before him was able to make that claim. No priest before him was able to perfectly represent both parties. Only Jesus can. And by the way, Jesus doesn't have to make intercession for his own sins before he makes intercession for ours. Every other priest has to first make intercession for his own sin. Jesus is a greater priest. And finally, Jesus is a greater sacrifice. He's not only the new temple. He's not only the new priest. He's not only the new altar. He's the new sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's no more need for any more animals. His blood suffices. His blood is sufficient. His blood cleanses once and for all. Jesus is the one who is willing to go back and experience the flaming sword of Genesis 3.24. He went under the sword for us. He was cursed so that we who are under the curse might be redeemed from the curse. He willingly took the curse on Himself. And it's no coincidence that in Mark 15, 38, it tells us that as he hung on the cross and died, interceding for us, as the perfect sacrifice was offered up, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Meaning what? The curtain that once separated us from the Holy of Holies. There was once a curtain that separated us. We couldn't go to it. We were separated from God because of our sin. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, the Holy of Holies, the curtain is torn in two. So anyone... Even the the ethnos, even the nations, the non-Jews, anyone and everyone, because of Jesus, can enter into the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. And Jesus invites us and summons us. He says, come to me and be right with God. Come to me and enter into the presence of God. Come to me and stay and abide and bear fruit and live and have life and bear fruit for the sake of the nations, bear fruit for the sake of others. That's why we're here, to abide in Christ, bearing fruit for the sake of those He's put around us. Ultimately, so Christ is made known as the great King that He is. So make sure this morning, you are right with God through Jesus Christ. There's only one, there's only one sacrifice, there's only one priest, there's only one way to God. God has provided it for you by His grace. Don't be so arrogant to say, I, I don't believe there can only be one way. God has provided the way, and he says, here you go. Here's your rescue. Go to Christ. Flee to Christ and be right with me. If you're not trusting in Christ, trust in him now. Go to Christ and bear fruit for the sake of the nations and ultimately for the sake of King Jesus. Let me pray for us.